Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin in prayer. If you could please stand, Father Fimian, and we'll lead us in prayer today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your many gifts to us. We thank you for this time of Advent as we look towards the Lord's coming we thank you for the great witness of those holy saints that have gone before us, those holy women of the Old Testament and our Blessed Mother, who is the model for all of us today. We ask you to look upon us and to help us to imitate their love and devotion and obedience. And we ask especially for the intercession of our Blessed Mother this evening, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. The first and most important announcement is that we have a very special guest with us tonight, Father Charles Abudi. Father Charles is 79 years old tomorrow. He's been a priest for 48 years, and uh, he's the founder of the Melkite Seminary in the United States. He comes here to support me and to support you, and he says to me on a regular basis, I said, Father Charles, who is, is also very, quite ill, and I said, Father, stay home and rest. And he says, I see what is going on at the Institute of Catholic Culture. I have never seen anything like this in my life and I want to support it, and I want to be a part of it. We're very thankful, Father Charles, for your commitment as a priest, for your commitment to the Institute of Catholic Culture, and for your gift of 79 years to us. I think so highly of Father Charles that I just named my son Carlino, which means little Charles after Father Charles. So, <laughs> Father Charles, happy birthday. Father Scalia needs no introduction, and so I'm going to simply ask you to uh, give him a rousing welcome and thank him for the great work and dedication to adult faith formation that he has given, not just to the Institute of Catholic Culture, but to all of the people of the Northern Virginia area. Thank you very much, Father Scalia. The Steelers are on in 30 minutes, so this is going to be the, the shortest talk I've ever given. No. Notice, uh, I'm practicing what I preach. I'm, I'm turning off my cell phone. We're beginning a 10-part series at my parish on turning off cell phones. Okay, it's become an epidemic. I want to first thank Sabatino for his always very generous um, introduction. And uh, I want to echo uh, the, the point he made about being rooted in, in the tradition rooted in scripture, when we look at the challenges that confront us culturally, it can be very, very intimidating. And uh, one of the temptations is to just to react to everything that's coming at us. And obviously we do need to respond to things, but the most important response we have to the decay that is all around us is to be holy. Because at the end of the day, uh, our sphere of influence is pretty small. But if we are rooted uh, in our Lord and his teachings, then our power becomes much greater uh, than we might think. And the, the women uh, whose lives and examples we'll be examining these next couple weeks uh, are, examples, are indications of that. Father Charles, it's, um, I, I want to just, well, happy birthday... But I hope you'll forgive me if I say that I welcome you with sort of mixed feelings. I'm, I'm glad you're here, but I'm also intimidated, okay? <laughs> There's 
you know, somebody here in the room who, who will be able to spot, hey, wait a minute, this guy. <laughs> so we'll look at the holy women of the Old Testament, and ladies, we're not going to be looking at all of them, okay? Because they're, they're more than just, you know, four or five of them, okay? But we just, just, I was just given two weeks. So please don't be insulted if we don't, you know, examine a great, great number. And in particular, their relation to the Blessed Virgin Mary and how they point us to Our Lady. This evening, I'll talk about Eve and Rebecca. And next week, well, I'll certainly do Esther and try to do Judith, but certainly Esther and then the mother of the Maccabees. Uh, not Mrs. Maccabee, but, uh, <laughs> but the mother who figures prominently in the second book of Maccabees. Now, before we get into... Uh, the particulars here, we need to review a manner of, of approaching scripture called typology. And it's an ancient way of interpreting scripture. In fact, it is a way that scripture interprets itself. It is something that St. Paul uses, and St. Peter, to interpret passages from the Old Testament and apply them. And some of you have heard this before. Some of you have heard this from me before. I point you to the catechism. Hold up your catechism, right? <laughs> so you should be carrying two books at all times. Paragraph 128 uh, to 130 in the catechism addresses this. The church, as early as apostolic times and then constantly in her tradition, has illuminated the unity of the divine plan in the two testaments through typology which discerns in God's works of the Old Covenant prefigurations of what he accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate Son. And then in the next paragraph, the Catechism quotes an ancient uh, saying, The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, meaning that we can look at the Old Testament and find some traces and prefigurations of what is to come. And the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. So when we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, we see things there that were hidden until the coming of our Lord. The way I explain it to kids in the school is in terms of trailers, movie trailers, because it's something they understand pretty quickly. <laughs> Okay, so you ever seen a movie trail? They all know what that is. I said, well, it's, you know, it's, that's, that's kind of what the typology is. We run across events and persons and objects in the Old Testament that sort of give us a hint of what's to come. It's sort of, you know, stay tuned. This is what's coming. And uh, the difference between the prefigurations in typology and movie trailers is that the trailer that always just gives you the best part of the movie. So you go to see the movie and you say, well, that was awful. You know, that, the, the only good parts were already in the trailer. But with typology, you, you get glimpses in the Old Testament of what is to come. But when it does come, it's better than they could have imagined. And so it is astounding in that way. And again, in the Catechism, it is called typological because it reveals the newness of Christ on the basis of the figures or types, that's where the word comes from, which announce him in the deeds, words, and symbols of the first covenant. And so they are prefigurements or types of what is to come. And uh, interesting for this time of year, the church, especially during Advent and Lent, and above all at the Easter Vigil, rereads and relives the great events of salvation history in the today of her liturgy. I want to set that down by way of introduction, because it's the way that we have, to, we have to have this in mind as we turn to a consideration of Eve and Rebecca this evening. I want to quote a reading that we'll have fairly soon from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. As one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. St. Paul is drawing an analogy, or a correspondence, if you will, between Adam, the first man, and then our Lord, 
So as by one man's disobedience, sin and death come into the world, so by one man's obedience, the obedience of our Lord, life and salvation come into the world. And with that, I have touched on something that is related to typology, but is somewhat different. And that is the theory of recapitulation. And St. Irenaeus in the second century talks about it. And recapitulation is taken from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, when St. Paul talks about our Lord reheading. That's the little Greek, is to rehead all things in Christ. And this translation, as anyway, says, speaks of uniting all things in him. Well, that's, that's not it. Uh, it's to restore all things in Christ, sometimes, is the translation. It's literally to rehead. So Adam was the first head of humanity. And now our Lord has begun a new humanity. He is the new head of humanity. To put it in crass, modern terms, humanity has been rebooted. Okay? So, uh, you know, the, the, the first one had, well, you know, fatal error. Right? Um, and... Uh, and the new humanity is, uh, it's been reheaded, rebegun by our Lord. Now, uh, one last word uh, before we get into the particulars about typology. I want to emphasize that typology is different from analogy. Analogy says simply that X is like Y. Typology is not exactly like that. And it's different from allegory. Allegory is X represents Y. And, you know, C.S. Lewis does this uh, a lot, you know. A lion. Hmm? It's killed. Three days later, rises again. Get it? Got it? Okay. Okay. So he's not very subtle, C.S. Lewis. Um, um, and it's different from identification, which is to say that X is Y. Typology incorporates elements of each of these but it's, it's somewhat different, and, and there are various angles to look at, and you'll see that as we go along. But I needed to say all of that by way of introduction because it helps us to understand better the two figures I will speak of tonight. And the first one, of course, is the first woman, Eve. And now, you might think that that is not fitting because, well, Eve, we usually think, well, kind of, she, she's... She got us into this, into this mess, didn't she? But uh, we have to appreciate, of course, first, Eve is in heaven, and that she is a prefigurement of Our Lady. One of the earliest titles or understandings of Our Lady is as the new Eve. So when we look back and we understand Eve, we can understand Our Lady better as well. So, Genesis chapter 2, it's the beginning. First part of the Bible, okay? All right. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Stop. What do you mean it's not good? Remember the six days of creation? Every step of the way, God looks at it and it was good. And then after the creation of man and woman, it's very good. Now we hear, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, why are we introduced to this? Did God mess up? Because, oh my gosh, I'm missing something there. Um, <laughs> no. We are introduced to the thought of God himself so that we can better appreciate what he's about to do. It is not good that the man should be alone. I think this is one of the funniest lines in Scripture because, guys, I mean, what's the stereotype, right? The, we want to be left alone. Uh, <laughs> And Adam had plenty of yard work. It was, you know. And so, but God looks and said, it's not good that the man should be alone. That is something that should echo into every relationship and, and just our understanding of who we are. It's not good for any one of us to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. Some translations have suitable partner which is a very unfortunate translation. I mean, I think it was probably fine before the push for alternative lifestyles, but now suitable partner has all sorts of baggage. Another uh, translation is helpmate, a helper fit for him. Whatever translation, the, the, the point is always the same, is that 
someone who will assist him in his vocation, and someone who is, is, is perfect for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, let's not think that God was making a mistake when he you know, created each animal and, and then Adam says, no, that's not it. Um, <laughs> This is to enlighten us in the distinction between human nature and animal nature. And this is a, a, a distinction that the modern world needs to realize just as much as the ancient world, perhaps even more so. That, that we, are of a, we are different in kind from the animals. We're not just smarter than they are. We're different in kind. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, what does this teach us about Eve and Mary? Virgin, spouse, and mother. The mother part's coming later. But virgin and spouse, just for right now. First of all, as virgin, or if you will, as daughter, Eve is created from the side of Adam. And the church fathers, from the earliest years, have seen in this passage, and then in John's account of the piercing of Christ's side, they have seen a parallel. And there again is the typology. That our Lord, as he is sleeping the the sleep of death on the cross, and his side is pierced, and blood and water flow out, that is a fulfillment of what happens to Adam. From Adam's side, his spouse is formed. New life comes from his side. From the new Adam's side, the church is formed. And the first and greatest member of the church, of course, the first to benefit from our Lord's pierced side, the one to benefit from our Lord's pierced side, even before our Lord came into the world, is his mother, Mary. And so as Eve was formed from the side of Adam, so the new Eve was, in a sense, formed spiritually, and it's good to keep this in mind because of the coming Feast of the Immaculate Conception, She was formed spiritually. She benefited from the graces of his pierced side already at the moment of her conception. I will make a helper fit for him. Eve was created to be the suitable partner, the helper fit for Adam. The one who would cooperate perfectly and participate perfectly in all of his work, in his vocation. Mary fulfills this. So just as the first Adam had a helper and someone to accompany him and a woman to accompany him in this, so the new Adam has someone, a woman, to accompany him in his work. So fast forward or flip forward to John chapter 2 and then John chapter 19 in which our Lord, first at the wedding feast at Cana, And then, as he hangs upon the cross, addresses his mother as woman. Never in John's Gospel is she referred to as Mary. She is called, referred to as the mother of Jesus, and he calls her woman. And the reason he does that is not out of disrespect. In the original, it's not a term of disrespect. It speaks poorly of our culture, that we would see that as a term of disrespect. Although I do say to the kids, you know, when our Lord turns to his mother and says, woman, I say, kids, don't try this at home. You know, (laughs) our Lord is, he's making a theological point here that your mother's not going to appreciate. Okay? So, and what is that point? She is not just his mother, 
but she is the woman. And just as the first woman was a helper fit for the first Adam, so the second woman is a helper fit for the new Adam. By calling her woman first in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast at Cana, when his public ministry begins, when he is first revealed because he works his first miracle, she sets things in motion. And he calls her attention to this. Woman, how does this concern of yours involve me? What is this to thee and to me, as one translation has it? He's calling her attention to the fact that she is now stepping into the role of the new Eve, the woman who is to help the new man, the new Adam. And then John 19, when he's hanging upon the cross and he turns to her again and says, Woman, he's calling to her attention again that now, at the foot of the cross, by offering herself perfectly in union with his sacrifice, she is fulfilling the role of the new Eve, the new woman, to participate perfectly in the work of the new Adam. So a helper fit for him. Our Lady is a helper fit for our Lord. She is the one who cooperates perfectly in his act of redemption. This is why we call her co-redemptrix, not because our Lord needed her cooperation. God could have did this you know, on his own and needed no cooperation whatsoever. But he allows her to participate because it's a much greater dignity to participate in our own redemption than just to have someone do it for us. And so he allows her to participate. And she does it perfectly because she is free from sin. So in that regard, she is virgin or maiden and spouse. And it's worth reflecting on Adam's reaction to Eve. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He finally sees someone with whom he can share his tasks and his struggle, his vocation, in other words. Not struggles in the same way as in our world, because there was, it was not a fallen world yet. And when our Lord looks at his mother, he sees someone who can share his suffering with him and his task. In fact, he sees the only person who can sympathize with him. The only person who will, to any degree, really understand. Think of the cry of his heart when he says to the apostles, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give, give the answers of all the people. You know, some people think you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Think of how that must have felt for our Lord. They did not know who he was. They did not understand. Even the crowds that had been following him, they did not understand. But Mary knew. The difference is that he wouldn't look at Mary and say, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but she would look at him and be able to say, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so Eve sheds light upon Mary, and Mary brings Eve into clear focus in that manner. Now, let's skip the first part of chapter 3, shall we? Okay, the fall. <laughs> because Eve does not resemble Mary in that. But we skip ahead to, chapter, to, to rather verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The words of God to the serpent, to the evil one. God creates a hatred. This is the reading we'll have on Wednesday for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. God creates enmity. It's extraordinary. He creates a hatred between the evil one and the woman. And not just the evil one and that woman, but the evil one and those who follow him, and that particular woman and her descendants, her heirs, and ultimately the second woman, the second Eve. 
he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as I think many of you know, this could be translated uh, differently as she shall bruise your head and you shall bruise her heel. Uh, and this is why many depictions of Our Lady, of course, show her stepping on the head of a snake. It's also why the cartoon BC always has the woman chasing after the snake with the club. <laughs> the greatest depiction of this, and if I could, I would have, have it up here, is Caravaggio's depiction. It's, I think, the Villa Borghese in Rome, and it shows Mary holding our Lord, who's sort of a toddler, and Mary is stepping on a snake, and our Lord is stepping on Mary's foot. And it's showing, is Mary, it's our Lord accomplishing this through Mary. Or Mary, you know, because of her yes, our Lord can step on the head, crush the head of the serpent. This is brought to fulfillment in those two passages from John's Gospel that I referred to before. Our Lady is the one who fulfills this. And then we go down further in that chapter, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Now that seems like a cruel thing, because, of course, Eve, by her disobedience... Well, she brought death into the world, but now she is called the mother of all the living. That is a great example of a phrase that really is not understood fully until the New Testament. The mother of all the living is not this Eve so much as it is the new Eve, Mary herself. She is the mother of all the living because life himself comes to us through her. Let me point out another example of, of a, a verse that is not understood really at all, or in its fullness, until the New Testament. And in this regard, I want to recommend to you very highly a book by Hugo Rahner. Hugo Rahner, okay? You theologians out there, it's not, I'm not recommending Karl Rahner, all right? Hugo Rahner. Uh, it's Mary and the Church. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book tracing the understanding of Mary as the image of the church. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is not understood fully until Ephesians 5, when St. Paul exegetes this, this passage. Because really, that is not our experience, is it? I mean, when was the last time that you were at a wedding and the groom walked down the aisle with his dad and the bride was waiting there for the groom? We don't experience that the man leaves his father and mother and, and cleaves to his wife. It doesn't apply so much to human marriage as to the supernatural marriage of Christ and the church. So St. Paul says, quoting, he quotes Genesis first, and then he says, this mystery is a profound one, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. So that passage from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That does not apply primarily to married couples in this world. It applies primarily to Christ and the church. Christ is the one who leaves his father in heaven and leaves his mother and cleaves to his wife, the church. And I point that out because Our Lady at the foot of the cross is a form of the church, is a type or an image of the church. And that is important to keep in mind. At that point, obviously, she does not cease being his mother, but he refers to her as woman, meaning that she is the new Eve, corresponding to his new Adam, which means she has a spousal role now. She is representing the church. In fact, in the Baltimore Catechism, I can't remember which level of the Baltimore Catechism this is, but, but the chapter on matrimony has the crucifixion scene at the beginning, 
this you know, drawing of the crucifixion scene, and our Lord there on the cross, our Lady at the foot of the cross, and that is put at the beginning of the chapter of matrimony to show that this is the standard, and our Lady is there representing the Bride of Christ, the Church. Representing, obviously not ceasing to be his mother and not being both his mother and his bride, but here again is where typology comes in. She is sort of functioning in, in different roles or representing different roles. And Mary is one flesh also, and more profoundly, of course, not so much with our Lord, but with the Holy Spirit. And this is a profound teaching that really I, I can't emphasize enough as very, very important for our day and age. Because in the end, who is Mary's spouse? Well, obviously, she's, uh, this, uh, Joseph is her spouse. But she is the spouse of the Spirit, and she becomes one flesh with the Spirit, as St. Maximilian Kolbe describes it. Now, obviously, this is by way of analogy, because the Spirit is Spirit. But the Spirit is her bridegroom, and she becomes one with him to such a degree. And this is an extraordinary insight. St. Maximilian Kolbe says that Mary is in a certain sense, he qualifies it, in a certain sense, the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. That's an extraordinary thing. And he's drawing that from that line in Genesis describing Eve and Adam, that they, the two become one flesh. So, well, if the Spirit if this is the spouse of Mary, then those two become one flesh, and therefore Mary is in a certain sense the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Holy Spirit. If you pay attention in your devotions to both the Holy Spirit and to Mary, you will notice that some of the same terms and titles are used for each of them. Just devotions in the church bear this observation out of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, one comes to mind just offhand, uh, ardent charity. That's one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. And St. Louis de Montfort says that that's one of the fundamental virtues of the Blessed Virgin Mary, is her ardent charity. In other words, she is so intimately united with the Holy Spirit that, that she, as every bride does, takes his name. So, in that sense also, Our Lady is a new Eve. As Eve became one flesh with her spouse, so Our Lady becomes one flesh with hers, with the Holy Spirit. St. Maximilian Kolbe was very clear that, uh, you know, th th this is an insight that really needs to be, to, to be developed more and more and more. And I'm not usually in favor of uh, theological um, novelties, but he roots it so deeply in the tradition that it's, it's impossible to get away from. And so those are some ways in which Eve points us to Mary and helps us to understand her more. Now then, in the punishment that Eve receives, last of all, I want to point this out. We've talked about uh, her as a spouse and as mother, but not just in one sense as mother. We need to go back to Genesis 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Here, God is articulating one of the results, one of the consequences of sin, one of the punishments. Pain in childbirth, and then, of course, the division between husband and wife. It wasn't intended by God, folks, okay? <laughs> it's a re result of sin. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And, of course, all of the daughters of Eve know this to be true in childbirth, except Mary. Mary, because she is freed from sin, because sin never at any moment touched her, she never suffers the penalty for sin. And so... At the birth of our Lord in Bethlehem, there is no pain of childbirth. 
This is part of what it means that Mary is ever virgin. She is virgin in part two, in childbirth. There's no loss of her physical integrity. There is no pain in childbirth for Mary. In Bethlehem, so that, that movie that came out a couple years ago on the nativity that, that depicted Mary just wailing in pain in childbirth, that's not true. Uh, Our Lady experienced no pain. Now, whenever I point this out, I, I get some very stern looks from women in the audience. Um, and... Um, Our Lady's pain of childbirth came at the foot of the cross. That is where it happened. Now at length the sword has passed, we say in the Stabat Mater, right? Uh, It is there at the foot of the cross where she sees her son dying and she receives a new son. Woman, behold your son. There she receives a new son, in fact, new children entirely because we are all really represented by John at that moment. Those are her pains of childbirth. So she does suffer them, but in the spiritual maternity. Now, moving on from Our Lady, want to go to the next woman of the Old Testament that I'd like to talk about. And that is Rebecca. And you can imagine in your mind the Hitchcock movie and the Rebecca, okay? Uh, And this might seem off-putting at first that Rebecca would be associated with Mary. Let me read the account and see if you're fans of saying Mary is sort of a new Rebecca. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that I may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me savory food that I may eat it and bless you before the, before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my word as I command you. Go to the flock and fetch me two good kids that I may prepare from them savory food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to, to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Upon me be your curse, my son. Only obey my word, and go, fetch them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the kids she put upon his hands and upon the smooth part of his neck, and she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord God granted, the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as a smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. 
Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Genesis 27. What a rotten story. (laughs) Let me summarize the three main points. First, the need for the Father's blessing. Without it, no inheritance. Second, the firstborn's claim to that blessing. The firstborn got it. It was his by right. So by right, it belongs to Esau. But we know from prior chapters that Esau was a bum. And he despised his birthright and really his status as the firstborn. So in order to get the blessing, you need to take on the likeness of the firstborn. Third, the mother's role in obtaining the blessing. Rebekah prepares the food, clothes Jacob, and presents him to his father. Now, let's not be in any doubt about the evil of this scene. All analogies limp. With every analogy, there's a greater dissimilarity than there is similarity. Rebecca was downright deceitful. Esau lies. I, I lost count. I mean, Jacob lies. I, I lost count how many times. And yet, St. Louis de Montfort applies this to Our Lady and to us, encouraging us to look upon Rebecca as a type of Mary and placing ourselves in Jacob's position. Because Jacob, after all, does go on to become Israel the Lord's firstborn son. Now, it doesn't mean that we see Mary as conniving, although she's shrewd. It doesn't mean that we have now permission to lie. And it doesn't mean that we regard God as some doddering, blind old man. A petitive old man, by the way. I mean, how many times do we hear savory food such as he loves, right? Okay, I mean, you've got a sense of kind of the guy's temperament. We should understand this, uh, or rather, St. Louis de Montfort's application of it, we should understand that the same way we understand some of our Lord's uh, parables. Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 18. All of Luke's parables and scenes, they're they're always shocking. Uh, For example, it's not one of the ones I just cited, but another one that just came to mind. When our Lord's at a dinner party, and he sees how everybody's jockeying for, for the best seats at the table, and he, what does he do? He gives advice on how to get the best seat at the table, how you should go to a dinner party, and how you should be conniving so that you look good. How do we interpret that? Is our Lord really giving advice? Is, is he like the Miss Manners of you know, the Holy Land? Is he really giving advice on how to go to a dinner party? No, the, the only way to understand it, he's tweaking them. He's kind of teasing them. And they, the chapters I just mentioned, Luke 16... And Luke 18, the unjust steward, we are encouraged to behave like the unjust steward. Really? (laughs) The unjust steward? We're not encouraged to be unjust, we're encouraged to be as shrewd in striving for holiness as he was shrewd in preserving his position. Our Lord is using hyperbole. And so also with the judge in Luke 18. (laughs) Our Lord compares God to a judge who cares neither about God nor man. (laughs) Now, God is not really that way. Okay, our Lord is using hyperbole again in that parable to get us to understand something. And so when we look at the story of Rebecca and Jacob, we should keep in mind this hyperbole as well. It's not a one-for-one correlation, but Rebecca can be seen as a type of Mary. First, notice how maternal she is. A mother's instinct is to clothe her children, make them beautiful. Uh, that usually doesn't involve animal skins. But, um, but a mother desires to make her children pleasing to their father. That's a very maternal instinct. Mothers do not, or should not, allow their children to go out looking miserable and unkempt. Uh, they make sure that their hair is combed and, and all the rest. Now, 
Our Lady has the same concern for us. She wants us to receive a blessing, the blessing of eternal life. She wants us to be clothed properly. Not physically, although she does that as well. But spiritually, she wants us to be clothed properly. Then there's our need for the Father's blessing. If we do not have the Father's blessing, if we are not incorporated into the firstborn, then we have no life. We need the Father's blessing. We need to be brought into his family in order to have life. Our status as sons and daughters of Adam is that we are cut off from the Father. We're deprived of his blessings. And we can't recall this too much. The reality of original sin and its effects on our soul. Every newborn baby looks very cute, but is born with original sin and is separated from God until baptism. Only the firstborn, the eternal Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, only He has a claim on that blessing. We cannot demand it. We have no claim on it. But we need to be the firstborn. We need to participate on that, which means we need to take on the likeness of the firstborn, the only begotten Son of God. We need to take on the likeness of Christ. And of course, this is precisely what St. Paul talks about a lot. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. You should put away the old self of your former way of life, corrupted through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. Put on the new self. And again, Ephesians 6, verse 11 and following. Put on the armor of God. And then later on, put on the armor of God that you may be able to resist on the evil day. And having done everything to hold your ground, so stand fast with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. Finally, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if one has a grievance against another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also do. And over all these, put on love. That is the bond of perfection. St. Paul talks again and again and again, obviously, of putting on Christ, putting on the virtues. When a priest vests, he has to have this in mind. Because with each vestment, each vestment signifies a virtue that the priest wants to have put on his soul as he approaches the altar of God. If any of you uh, were able to watch the Pontifical High Mass at the National Shrine, Last April, you saw the clothing, the vesting of the bishop. And with each vestment, the bishop was saying a prayer. And every part of him was vested. And it was a long, you know, some people say it was a long, drawn-out ceremony. And it was long, but it was extraordinarily powerful. And it it evokes exactly what St. Paul is talking about here. Now, let me make a distinction here, because the Catholic teaching on grace is that our life in Christ is more than just putting something on. Okay? It, it is an interior renewal. We don't want to forget that. And St. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. And so this putting on of Christ, this being clothed in his virtues, is an image that he uses that is helpful for us. Now, the teaching of grace remains that it is a radical interior renewal that we experience when we begin our life in Christ. But the image of being clothed is helpful as well. What does it mean? Well, I think we can get a a glimpse of this in thinking about one of the Psalms. Psalm 42, and those of you who go to the extraordinary form, uh, this is uh, the last verse 
of the psalm that's prayed at the foot of the altar. It refers to God, in one translation is my Savior and my God. The better translation is the Savior of my face and my God. The Savior of my face. Now that's an ancient psalm. We today, we, we have the expression, right, to save face. When you've done something wrong, you're embarrassed, you're shamefaced. What do you need to do? You need to, you need to save face. And then the psalmist addresses God as the Savior of my face. In other words, we need a new likeness. We need a new, a new face. We need some new way to go before the Father. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the one we put on. So when we go to the Father, we're always going through with and in Christ being clothed in him and his virtues. This whole aspect of the face is is throughout Scripture, especially the Psalms. Let your face shine on us and we shall be saved. Wonderful line. Lord, show us your face and our faces shall be saved. He gives us this through, with, and in the Lord. Which brings us to Mary's role in obtaining this blessing. The blessing really is being clothed in Christ, being entirely renewed in him, having his likeness when we go before the Father. It's all about a mother clothing her child to make that child pleasing to the Father. She clothes Jacob in such a way so as to obtain the blessing. The the difference is this. Well, there are many differences. Uh, We're not deceiving God the Father. Uh, Mary is not a crook. Um, and ours is not a disguise. Jacob wears a disguise in order to deceive. Ours is not a disguise. It's rather a likeness. We are formed in the likeness of Christ. This gives a sense of the entire project of the Christian life. To be formed in the likeness of Christ. To have people look up and see no longer us, but Jesus. That's the goal. And so this, this story of Rebecca and Jacob is very fitting. Let me point out some details of the story that I think help bring out some more. Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Our lady is always listening. Now, it's no surprise, of course, that mom was listening, because moms hear everything. You know, they... Uh, Our Lady is always listening. She's always looking for an opportunity to do good for her children, to bring them in a more beautiful way before their Heavenly Father, to clothe them in the likeness of the firstborn son. And then she commands him, Now therefore, my son, obey my word as I command you. You can almost hear her saying, do whatever he tells you. Rebecca gives this command, said, just, just listen to me and you will receive the blessing. Just listen to me and you'll be clothed in the likeness of the firstborn. So she is to be trusted. Jacob sees that. And then she says, she commands him, Fetch me two kids that I may prepare from them savory food for your father such as he loves. That I may prepare them. This is very much at the heart of what St. Louis de Montfort and Maximilian Kolbe and John Paul II and many others teach. Our Lady is the one who prepares things for us and makes them beautiful. So Rebecca says to Jacob, just get those things, bring them to me, do your best. You're just a kid. Okay, but do your best, bring them to me and I'll prepare them and I'll make them beautiful. Uh, it calls to mind a wonderful, wonderful detail of uh, the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe on the last day of the apparition, the day of the miracle itself. When Mary appears amid all of those roses and she tells Juan Diego to go gather the roses, and so he takes his tilma or his cloak and he, he folds it up and he puts all the roses in there. He's a guy. He's just grabbing the roses and throwing them in there. And one of the most touching details of the story is that he goes back to Mary and mother that she is, she reaches in and arranges the roses. 
it's a wonderful way of understanding, well, Rebecca, and by way of Rebecca, understanding Mary even more deeply, that I may prepare them. And so in our Marian devotion, this is really what we should do. Okay. Basically going before and saying, well, this is what I've got. Okay. And allowing her to prepare it. Rebecca took the best garments of Esau. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? The best garments. Now, the best garments <laughs> didn't sound too great. But it's a very interesting detail of the story. Took the best garments. Our Lady wants to clothe us in the glory of Christ, in the best that she can give us. I suppose that Rebecca could have just taken any old clothes of Esau, but she didn't. She took the best. And that's what Mary desires to accomplish as well. Jacob says, I shall seem to be mocking him. He's nervous. <laughs> Good reason. You know, what if he finds out? When we are clothed by the intercession of the Virgin Mary in the likeness of the firstborn, of Christ himself, we can approach the Father with confidence. She clothes us and she makes us capable of being who we want and claim to be, namely Christ's, other Christ's, Christians. And so a good thing to ask Our Lady to do is to vest us, to clothe us. Those of you who wear scapular or miraculous metal, when you put that on in the morning, think of that. Mary, clothe me. Clothe me in the likeness of your son. And eliminate all deceit from your minds, okay? Don't act like Jacob in that regard. I have to confess, for years, I liked Esau more than Jacob. <laughs> so, you know, when I you know, later on read that, you know, uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, as we read twice in Scripture. I was a little nervous. And St. Louis de Montfort, in this interpretation, really puts it in perspective. It's hard not to like Esau more. He's the hunter. He's out there. And Jacob's kind of, you know, he's at home. He's kind of a mama's boy, right? That's how we would imagine him. But this puts everything into perspective. He desires to be clothed in the likeness of the firstborn by his mother. And that is an image for us of what we should desire in our relationship with Mary. A good thing to do at the beginning of the day, uh, as you go into Mass, right before you receive communion, right after you receive communion, for me in the likeness of Christ. Form me, vest me, clothe me in the likeness of the firstborn son. Now then, I'll conclude there for this evening. Sabatino owes me Four minutes. Yes, is that a conclusion, Father? That is my conclusion. That's okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Father Scalia. <laughs> uh, we'll, take, we'll take a short break, uh, three, four minutes. If you guys are, you know, what I'd like to see one of these times is, is you all coordinate your questions so that they're on opposite sides of the room so that Sabatino has to keep going back and forth. <laughs> Father, for those of us who, uh, who have daughters, uh, you know, holy women of God, what are some you know, fundamental things you recommend unique to America today when we raise our daughters? Well, I think they need to interpret the Rebecca story very, very carefully. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's a great question. I mean, I, Our Lady is, is the model uh, of, of all womanhood and for all women. Reading John Paul II's Mulieris Dignitatem would be uh, an, an excellent start. As far as Our Lady goes, her faith, most of all, her purity, uh, her courage, her steadfastness. She embodies all of the virtues as perfectly as any human person can. In our culture, what is particular for our culture is virgin and mother. And perhaps it's not particular for our culture either because... Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, appears as a virgin mother, uh, as a maiden who is pregnant. Virginity and motherhood in our culture are treated as physical maladies that have to be eliminated. 
And so growing in appreciation for Mary as virgin mother, and one step further, as an appreciation for her virginity and for her motherhood. One of the prayers during the octave of Christmas in the what's sometimes called the Roman canon, uh, or Eucharistic prayer one, less felicitously, it says that... Uh, we celebrate that day when Mary, without loss of her virginity, gave the world its Savior. That's the pedantic translation we have now. I don't know that the new translation is going to get precisely to the Latin. The Latin says, uh, we celebrate that day when the virginity of Mary brought the Savior to the world. It is Our Lady's virginity that is itself life-giving. And so a growing appreciation for that, for purity, virginity, and then for motherhood, uh, you know, which is just assaulted left, right, and center in our culture. So fostering that in young women is so important. And Mulieris Dignitatem, or John Paul II, speaks uh, very well uh, to that point. Father, um, having to do with the spousal relationship between Mary and the Holy Spirit, is the Annunciation sort of a, a consummation of that relationship, or is it more just kind well, of a natural... Well, I think we need, to, we need to be careful with it, with, with that, um, because, you know, one of, the, one of the accusations that's been thrown at the church is that, uh, oh, this is just another take on an ancient Greek myth, you know, the gods impregnating the, the, the mortals. But, it, of course, it's, it's, you know, completely different. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the, the, the overshadowing, the union, that, that um, the Holy Spirit forms the sacred humanity of our Lord. I guess we could call it that, but be very careful and, and qualify it, because otherwise people see it as some sort of, you know, pagan ritual, and you don't know where they're going to take that. Okay. Uh, but it, it also helps us to understand, I mean, when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit overshadows the Blessed Virgin Mary, that helps us to understand the, the tremendous significance of Our Lady's body. Tremendous significance in why she had to be assumed into heaven. She had to have been. Not only because the church has taught that infallibly, but because uh, that is really the, the final step in the assumption. Uh, because God assumed her to himself when he assumed his sacred humanity from her. And so the assumption is, is there, and that's uh, because she is so one with God. Father, can we see a further connection between Rebecca and Our Lady when Abraham is seeking um, a bride for Isaac? Like some of the, the verses that come to mind is specifically how Rebecca is asked if she will go, and she says, I will go, kind of like the fiat of Our Lady. Um, and then I believe like verse 24, 60 in Genesis says, um, Our sisters be the mother of thousands and ten thousands. Kind of, I just see parallel there. I was surprised that. It wasn't discussed. Wow. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, that, yes, I mean, see, yeah, kudos, because this is, this is kind of one of the fun things about typology, is that you, you know, it start, all, all these, these, these parallels start, start popping up. I've never seen that applied uh, to Our Lady, but I, I think it is fairly applied to her. Our sister be the mother of thousands and, t and of, uh, of ten thousands. Now, I think that's fair. So Gen Genesis 20, uh, 24, when he sends servants to find a wife for Isaac. Yeah. So your homework for next week. Judith, Esther, and then 2 Maccabees chapter 7. The last line of which, just to give you a sense of what that chapter is going to be like, the last line is, let this be enough then about the eating of sacrifices and the extreme tortures. Okay? <laughs> so, careful when you read that. All right. Thank um, you. All right, wonderful. Let's uh, conclude with a prayer Thank and you. blessing. I'd like to conclude by reading the uh, Ave Maristella. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail, bright star of ocean, God's own mother blessed, ever sinless virgin, gate of heavenly rest. Taking that sweet Ave, which from Gabriel came, peace confirm within us, changing Eva's name. 
Break the captive's fetters, light on blindness pour, all our ills expelling, every bliss implore. Show thyself a mother. May the word divine, born for us thy infant, hear our prayers through thine. Virgin all excelling, mildest of the mild, freed from guilt, preserve us pure and undefiled. Keep our life all spotless, make our way secure, till we find in Jesus joy forevermore. Through the highest heaven, to the Almighty Three, Father, Son, and Spirit, one same glory be. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you very much, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.